We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If I ventured in the slipstream This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickBrenFit.com Every single week, this fall and winter, except maybe Christmas and Thanksgiving, I will have articles up on the website breaking down tons of different things. The article that I have dropping today, actually, by the time this podcast is out, I did a little deep dive uh, into the ascent of Victor Hovland. Uh, how did he make this leap? Is it sustainable? Uh, what causes short game improvement? Is that here to stay? What types of courses are best for his skill set? How does this translate to future major success? I dove into all that and found out some really interesting things. So I will be doing stuff like that on the website all fall and winter long. So head on over to rickrunkit.com, promo code Andy. That is the important part if you want to help me out. And we would love to have you as part of the team. All right, coming up on this podcast, Jay Blasey of Jay Blasey Design Golf Course Architecture. Uh, I think this is a guy who, frankly, is one of the best young golf architects that we have had in quite some time. Uh, he's already done some incredibly impressive things working for Robert Trent Jones previously, specifically on Chambers Bay, which we talk a lot about in this podcast. He's working on an incredibly exciting project right now in the middle of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. We talk about the challenges of designing championship golf courses for the modern professional golfer, his thoughts on the distance debate, working with Tom Doak. There is a ton of stuff in here. This is certainly one that I've been looking forward to for a while. So without further ado, let's bring on Jay. All right, Jay Blasey is here of Jay Blasey uh, Golf Course Design. Uh, I'm incredibly excited to dive into a number of talk topics with you, but let's start big picture. Walk me through how you found yourself in the relatively niche career of golf course architecture. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me on and um, looking forward to chatting today. You know, for me, it really started with my dad. My dad grew up uh, caddying at Beverly Country Club on the south side of Chicago. That's how he fell in love with golf. And he fell in love with golf so much so that when he and my mom got married and built their first house, uh, he, he built a putting green in the backyard. And so when I was born, they brought uh, plastic clubs to the hospital and, and from uh, coming home from the hospital, I've had a putting green in my backyard my whole life so i was chipping and putting as a two-year-old we would go out to dinner and i'd flip the placemat over and draw golf holes and crayon as a you know four-year-old so it's really kind of been something that's that's been there really my whole life and when it came time to go to college and figure out what you wanted to do i was actually inclined to just go into business i never really knew that that you could make a living or ha have a, a life as a golf designer even though i had studied golf designers and things like that I, I my parents were the ones who actually said you know you need to pursue this and and kind of 
pushed me into it. So I got a degree in landscape architecture. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and then and uh, got a degree in landscape architecture from the University of Wisconsin. And then upon graduating, you know, well, throughout my college time and, and in school, I'd reached out to pretty much everybody in the industry. And upon graduating, there really weren't many jobs. And so I spent a couple months on my buddy's couch in Baltimore working at a landscape architecture office. And a few months later, I got the opportunity to go join Robert Trent Jones, too, out in, in uh, Palo Alto, California. When you were growing up, were there any specific architects, maybe some specific projects that were some of the things that really got your gears rolling? What were some of the biggest influences for you that really got you invested really deep into the architecture side of things? So as a kid, I grew up, I started playing on on public and municipal golf courses. So played little par three golf course and then graduated up to executive and then nine holes of municipal golf and then 18 holes of municipal golf. But our family uh, took family vacations a bunch. And oftentimes those would revolve some way, somehow around golf. And I um, distinctly remember we visited Hilton Head Island and mm-hmm. going to see Harbor Town. I remember the first time we were going to play Harbor Town, we had our tea time six months in advance and, and it poured rain and we got rained out. And I, I don't know if I was 10 years old or however old I was, but I was absolutely crushed, <laughs> devastated. There was no way to make it up on the trip or whatever. So I would say the earliest influences of real architecture were the different magazines that came out and you saw different golf courses from around the country, whether or not they were new golf courses that were being built or top 100 lists and seeing pictures of great golf courses. And then that spurred on looking at different books and and, and looking at some of the different books. And then obviously watching golf on TV and seeing whether it was Pebble Beach or Riviera or things like that. So a lot of it came more from magazines books uh tv and then lucky enough to travel and see some of the different uh great golf courses around the country in person um but so i would say harbor town early on we got to go uh i got to play pebble beach with my dad when i was in high school that was a big deal things like that but but those were some of the early influences yeah i asked you that question cuz i i just got back from chambers bay about a month and a half ago, which is probably, you know, the golf course that you're most known for at, at this point, you worked on that with Robert Trent Jones. I would imagine that changes based on some of the other projects that you have coming forward, but that was kind of the first course that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. And I was curious about when you initially began working on Chambers, was the main goal of that project to host professional golf at the highest level? It's a great question. So, um, you know, that was a a public project. It's in Pierce County, Washington, and Pierce County was the the owner of of the site, which was a former sand and gravel mine. And so they had this site and they knew that they needed to reclaim the site. So they were going to be making an investment regardless. They had a wastewater treatment facility uh, at the south end of that property, and they needed a way to uh, use the products from that wastewater facility. So they knew that they were going to be creating some kind of giant park and likely a golf course in order to kind of just fulfill the needs of the site. The county executive and and the kind of the visionary behind the project, John Ladenberg, he took the approach that said, hey, look, as a county, we have multiple golf courses. And those golf courses are serving the needs of our community and doing so uh, quite well. This site is very unique in that it's on Puget Sound. It's a big site. Could, Could we create a golf course here that would be something different, that would bring people from outside of our community into Pierce County. And so not only on a day-to-day basis, but then thinking as well about the opportunity for for hosting events. So it was certainly something that was talked about from day one. 
obviously at that time, which event it would, it could potentially host and how that would work uh, were a lot of unknowns. You know, I, I, there hadn't been a golf course, a new golf course since the 1970s that had hosted a U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. And so, well, that was something that was kind of talked about how realistic it was, was, was very much out there. But, you know, when we interviewed to get the job uh, with the county, one of the things that we tried to do was to share with them how much we believed in the site. And so we actually had uh, little bag tags made that said, you know, Chambers, at that time, the project was known as Chambers Creek. Uh, and so we had these little bag tags made up that said Chambers Creek 2030 U.S. Open. We, we tried to, to figure out, okay, if everything went the best it could possibly go and we built this golf course and it, it grew in for 10 years and then the USGA decided that they liked it and they award these things out 10, 20 years in advance, what would be the best case scenario? And so we, we, we said, okay, 2030 U.S. Open. And, and we gave out these bag tags as part of the interview as a way to try and tell the county, we believe so much in the site that we think this has the potential to do something that hasn't been done for 40 years. Yeah, that was what I was kind of curious about because, you know, Chambers opened in what, 2007? And the U.S. Open was there by 2015. Was the USGA during the design process, did they ever come down? Did when, How did they take notice? So uh, we certainly reached out to them and all throughout the whole process, you know, when we, before we ever had the job and we were interviewing, we, we openly talked about championships and what those would mean. There was a great book that John Feinstein uh, wrote called Open or The Open, and that kind of detailed the U.S. Open at Bethpage Black. And, it got, and, and what it did is it gave you a kind of a behind the scenes look of who some of the people were that were involved on the USGA side, talked about the important issues. So, you know, everybody on the project read that book and learned about who was Mike Davis and who was Mike Butts and who was David Fay and what, how did it, how did that relate to Beth Page Black and what does, what does the open mean to the USGA and things like that. And so we had a keen understanding of all of that. I remember the first time I ever met Mike Davis was at the 2005 U.S. Amateur at Mary, and I had written him a letter talking about Chambers Bay, and I was there uh, at the at the event with my uncle, who who's a constitutional law professor, and Walter Driver was the president of the USGA at the time, and so I'm there with my uncle. I said, "Hey, that's you know that's Mike Davis, the the." uh, the guy in charge of setup for the U.S. Open, and he goes, "Well, he's talking to Walter Driver, the president of the USGA. He was my former student." <laughs> I said, "Well, that's interesting, <laughs> whatever." And so, anyway, I went over and introduced myself, and and he said, "Oh, yeah, I got that letter. That sounds interesting, or whatever." And anyway, the you know, we all reached out and and invited them to kind of be part of the process and to see the golf course. They came out in early 2006 while we were in the middle of construction. And, and toured the site. They came back again with another group. And so I remember on Mike Davis's first visit, you know, his kind of parting words were, hey, this seems to have everything we'd be looking for. You know, it's in a major metropolitan market. It's It's got transportation access. You know, you could get to that site by car, by boat, or by train in theory. Mm-hmm. So it's got the access issue. It's near a major metropolitan market. The West Coast is a good thing for TV and all that. Sandy soils is a great thing. It's on water. The site is really big, so it could handle, you know, all the infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. So he said, you know, the site's got everything we want. Just don't screw up the golf course. So <laughs> that was that was kind of the, the the takeaway. But yeah, they were they were actively involved throughout the whole thing. And then, as you said, the course opened in 2007 and and was awarded the uh, US the 2010 US Amateur and the 2015 US Open in February of 2008 so it came very very quickly. What I'm so curious too about is you know how different is it designing a golf course with the prevailing ethos being this is going to hopefully host golf at the highest level 
right? This is a golf course that has to stand up to the best players in the world and all of the modern technology advances that come with it versus designing a golf course, which you've done plenty of as well, that probably doesn't have any true aspirations of hosting any men's professional tournaments. Is there one that you prefer over the other? Do you find it far more challenging when you're going into a project and thinking, okay, the goal maybe here is that this is a golf course that we want to have to stand up to the best in the world someday? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, you know, it's an interesting proposition, right? I remember in high school, they, I was interviewed by the paper and they said, what's your career goal in life? And I said, to, to design a golf course that hosts a U.S. Open. Congratulations. <laughs> whether whether or not I knew what that meant or not, you know, at that time, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't. But, you know, the idea of trying to design something that you know will host the, the game's highest players in in uh, in their biggest event is an interesting one. Obviously, on any project, almost every single project that I, I've ever worked on, you have multiple goals in which your client, whether it's a municipality in the instance of Chambers Bay or a private club, where they want the golf course to be fun and playable for everybody, and then they want it to be challenging for the best players at the same time. And so, and, and those those two goals can be achieved at the same time. There are different things that you can do to make it fun and playable for everybody and, and thought-provoking and challenging for the best players. The reality is that trying to achieve those goals largely depends on the site. Mm -hmm. And at Chambers Bay, the site was so unique in that it was, you know, it has a huge scale to it. And obviously you were just there, so you can kind of speak to that. But the scale is so immense that you really needed the golf course to, to fit the site and to match the site. So that was order of business number one. And then obviously knowing that championships could be involved, that relates to, you know, how do you want to set up green complexes? What kind of uh, contours do you want in and around greens? How do you want the ball to be moving on the ground? And and the sad reality is that a lot of it is just a byproduct of length. The, the top players in the world just hit the ball so much further than everybody else that you have to, to design the golf course to be able to be stretched to play at extreme length and so again the site at chambers bay was so big that you know it allowed us to to have a 7800 yard plus golf course if you wanted it to the beauty is that you know we've crafted a golf course in which i remember distinctly when it opened i would have people out there and and play one of those preview rounds or early rounds in 2007 i'd give them a golf ball on the first tee and i say i dare you to lose it you know, you can't really lose a golf ball out there. You can pretty much play the whole golf course with a putter. So we've had, you know, 70 plus year old uh, female golfers who've had the best round of their life out there mm -hmm. on the same golf course that, um, you know, can drive tour pros crazy. So um, a lot of that has to do with just, you know, contouring and fairway undulations and things like that. You don't, you don't have to have out of bounds and what you know 15 water hazards in order to make the golf course uh tough. When when you watched the 2015 US Open, did the course play the way that you intended it to? Did anything surprise you? Because I for one, I always seem to underestimate these guys' ability at the highest level. Like I'll give you two recent examples. I've gotten the opportunity to play some golf at Oak Hill and LACC where they had the two majors this year. And there were a couple of golf holes on both of those courses. 15 at Oak Hill comes to mind, three and 15 at LACC come to mind where I thought to myself, wow, these are going to be a real interesting challenge to watch pros take on these golf holes. And those are golf holes that I believe are fascinating, wonderful tests for amateurs and then I watched the pros play them, and it was far less compelling than I expected. They did not have any of the same anxieties and decisions that amateurs do. So I was curious if you had that experience at all at Chambers Bay, or did it kind of provide the test that you fully expected it to? Yeah, it's a great question. I, 
I thought it, it provided the test that we wanted it to. I yeah. really did. I, I, I loved how it performed, you know, and it's very different than what they see week in and week out. You know, they make their living on knowing where the golf ball is going to go. Right. And, and they can fly it 238 yards and, and be within, you know, 30 feet of a flag stick. And, and as long as the ball is going to stop where they hit it, they're very, very good. The beauty of Chambers Bay and, and maybe other links golf courses is that when the ball hits the ground, the journey's not over. And, and so, so much of the design of Chambers Bay was what's happening on the ground plane and what's going to happen to the ball after it lands. And so it was really, really fun and compelling for me to watch the, the pros and the top amateurs try to figure out what's the best way to get the ball where it needs to go. And, and more often than not at Chambers Bay, the best way to get the ball to your intended target is to hit it somewhere else and let the land take it to where it needs to end up. And so, you know, to me, that's really fun to watch and, and not only to watch the shots themselves, but to watch the players and the caddies trying to figure out, okay, we know where we want the ball to end up, but how are we going to get it there? Are we going to fly it 200 and land it softly, or are we going to fly it 185 with a draw and, and try to get it to release? We've got this sideboard or this kicker slope over here on the left. Are we going to play it high up of the kicker slope or are we going to try and keep it at the toe of the slope or are we going to try and avoid that slope altogether and play at the flag so to me it was really super super interesting to watch all of that um to your point in terms of their abilities and just how different they are from the rest of us i remember going around in practice rounds with some of the players and pointing out you know different aspects of the golf course and try to give them good lines off tees and things like that and if you remember the one of the storylines that week was an amateur cole hammer who was yeah. 15 years old at the time and yeah. probably weighed about 135 pounds and so i took him around and we were going around and and jake knapp was another amateur in the field he played at ucla and jake is dustin johnson long i mean he's he's just super super long off the tee so we'd get on a tee and i'd give jake a line and then I'd have to give Cole a line and they might be 70 yards apart on what to take off the tee. But Cole had an amazing short game. We, we got to three or four spots on the golf course where I told them, you know, forget about your sand wedge here. You know, you got to putt this or use a seven iron or something like that. You know, it's just too firm and fast. You can't stop it. You, you know, sand wedge is no good here or whatever. And he'd just drop three balls and pull out his 60 degree wedge and hit him to about a foot over and over again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, different, different game, uh, you know, and, and whatnot. But, but by and large, I thought the golf course, not only in the, um, in the open, but also in the amateur in the 2010 amateur, which they, they really, the USGA really did use that as a kind of a proving grounds to try to figure out yeah. how firm and fast they could get the golf course and things like that. And one of the days of the amateur, it, it blew 30 miles an hour and they clearly crossed the line. They fit, they figured out where the line was because they knew when they crossed it in the amateur. I posted a picture of chambers with the caption of, I hope this place gets a second chance. And it, it was, it weirdly went like viral on Twitter. So it seems like there was a lot of support that hopefully the USGA will make the decision to come back. It felt like the two main criticisms that people had with it were, a, the greens, which have now been redone and they're purely POA now, and B, the, I guess, like the topographical challenges maybe for spectators, right? There's some bottlenecks on this golf course, which by the way was, I mean, I spent four days at LACC. There's that, they were getting the same <laughs> criticism for that as well. I mean, the way that the Barranca runs through LACC, that makes that an incredible challenge for spectators. By the way, if you ever watched a professional golf tournament at Pebble Beach, it's not the easiest golf course for spectators either. You've got six holes on the Pacific Ocean, whistling straights. I went to the Ryder Cup at 2020 in 2021. That's got eight holes on Lake Michigan, right? So I guess I, I really just hope that they give this place another chance. I, I don't know if if you if you have any more insight into the possibilities of that happening ever again or how you feel about some of the criticisms that the golf course received that week, which 
had far less to do with the architecture and I, I guess more to do with some, again, like I mentioned, some logistical challenges of spectators and and I guess the agronomy a little bit. But where do you, do you see Chambers as as having the opportunity or possibility for hope, hopefully bringing an open back there? Because I, I do think there are a lot of people that have grown over time to appreciate that open now almost 10 years later than maybe they did in the moment. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I'm I'm personally invested in it, so I have my own strong feelings, but I think I can take a pretty sensible approach from it. I just know how much having that event meant to the the community, not only the local Pierce County community, but just the Pacific Northwest in general. It's the first time the US Open was played in the Pacific Northwest. First time it was played on on Fescue. So there was that was the first Fox broadcast, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> which I'm not sure did anybody any favors. So there were so many firsts, and obviously for the USGA, that was their first time staging a big event there. And and so as you go through that process, you learn. So as it relates to the spectators, you know, I think there's different ways to view a golf tournament and. It's site specific in terms of what's the best way to do it. Chambers Bay is an unbelievable venue to go find a spot in a grandstand and be able to watch multiple holes from one spot for for a day or for a few hours. It's a hard golf course to to have a group and follow along for eighteen holes. And so, you know, one of the challenges again being being a first was. What would happen is the grandstands would fill up in the first 30 minutes, and then there wasn't really good access to the grandstand. So if they were to ever have another championship, you know, one easy takeaway would be let's have a ton more grandstands and encourage people to go sit in a spot and enjoy the day as opposed to trying to follow along with a group. The, the other area is the area up above. There's the trail above the golf course. That was that was really not used in 2015. It, it just kind of served as a trail. But but that entire area is another spot where you could have people watching and actually looking down on the golf. Of, you know, imagine being in the upper deck of a football stadium. Yeah, looking down and seeing eight or ten holes at a time. Um, so I think there are certainly opportunities to work through some of those logistical challenges. It was a weird weather week. Uh, that mm-hmm. was the warmest spring they've ever had, and the week itself was very warm. You know, in in the pit, and I call it the former sand and gravel mine, the pit. In the pit, it's usually about five to ten degrees warmer than everywhere else. So, a uh, sixty-two degree day is the perfect temperature to walk the golf course. That week, it was in the eighties, so and it felt like it was in the nineties or whatever. So, there were some challenges there in terms of. Uh, you know, the agronomy and, and the greens, obviously, that was, in my opinion, really unfortunate that that kind of became a talking point in the storyline. Me too. Um, I've I've been close friends with the, the agronomy team up at Chambers for such a long time. And those guys are, are real heroes. And, and that was probably the the most um, disappointing element of the whole week is to, to watch some folks on TV who really didn't know what they were talking about start sharing some opinions that didn't make a whole lot of sense and having those things kind of go viral. But to, to your point, you know, and what was too bad is, is that, yeah, we all, we all saw on HD that some of the putts bounced around a little bit, but if you really study the data, the same number of putts were hold then as, as pretty much every other U S open and things like that, it, it really didn't affect anything other than becoming a talking point. Um, so yeah, you know, long answer, but my sincere hope is that they'll get another chance. They've had the they had the women's amateur last year, and that was an amazing success. I think uh, the Pacific Northwest and and the Pierce County and and Seattle Tacoma Metro area would love to have the U.S. Open come back, and I think it would be great for for the region, for the golf course, and and for the USGA. Last question as it relates to championship golf, because I want to touch on you know, a lot of your other upcoming projects that you're currently working on as well. But we've, we've hinted at this a little bit already in our discussion, but 
when I asked you about the challenges of designing a golf course for men's professional golf at the highest level, but how does this conversation and discussion you've worked with the USGA, obviously in the past with chambers, but where do you stand on the whole MLA bifurcation argument? Because what's interesting to me is, you know, it seems like most architects that I've spoken to and listened to understand that we're encountering a problem after a certain point, like narrowing the fairways, thicker, rough, some of these great golf courses, there's just not room anymore. Right. So a lot of, a lot of the architects I've been happy to see are kind of coming around on the side that I personally am on, on this one. But I also find that interesting because you could probably also make the argument that maybe there's less work for architects if if the ball rolls back right maybe there's less restorations maybe there's less renovations so but it is in the benefit of the game maybe 10 20 50 years from now so i'm always curious to anytime i talk to an architect or listen to an architect i always am curious to get their thoughts on where they stand on this issue well i'm a huge proponent of of the quote rollback um yeah. and you know i don't i don't know I don't have a, a a strong opinion as to do you roll it back ten percent or thirty percent, you know, wh- whatever the details are. But you know, it's fascinating to know that architects were writing about this a hundred years ago as, as being a, a problem. And you know, I think we've already crossed the point of of where it needs to happen. Yeah, you know that that probably happened ten years ago in terms of when it needed to stop or go backwards but but no i am a big proponent i mean the sad reality is just the way that a top collegiate player or a, a professional hits the golf ball uh and the way that even a scratch player hits the golf ball can be drastically different you know i've been playing my whole life you know i'm probably a two or three handicap and you know if i hit a good drive it, it might go 270 or, or 280 and these guys are flying the ball 320 and it's just a completely different game. And what happens is the further that they hit the ball, the further it goes offline. Mm-hmm. And so then the golf courses need to get bigger and you know longer and wider. So now we need more land. So now, now we need more infrastructure. So everything costs more to build. Now it costs more to maintain. And it really just becomes unsustainable. Uh, if if you were really putting your thinking hat on, if we weren't so married to some of the traditions of the game, you know, golf would work a lot better if it was half scale. Yeah. Everything would cost so much less and take up so much less land. And you could have the same game if you just changed the ball or the equipment. But yeah, in, in terms of rollback and bifurcation, I, I'm a huge proponent and, and think it, it's long overdue. Speaking of smaller scale, talk to me about some of the work that you're doing for the first tee of San Francisco with the the Golden Gate Park project. Because, you know, I've got to say, I spend a bit of time in in San Francisco. My my girlfriend's from there and in med school up there. And placing a golf course in in that setting, I think, has the potential to be something really exciting and really, really special. So talk to me a little bit about how that came to be and and where that project stands right now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Yeah, so there's been a golf course in Golden Gate Park since uh, right around 1950. Uh, and it's really at the west end of the park. For people who are, are familiar with San Francisco, um, Golden Gate Park is, is kind of like Central Park in, yeah. in New York. It's a, huge, it's a huge, huge park that really kind of traverses the city, uh, as opposed to Central Park, which runs north-south. Golden Gate Park runs east-west. So the western end of the park is out at the ocean, and then it goes into the city. The golf course uh, is a nine-hole par three golf course, and it sits on the far western end of the park, just a few hundred yards from the ocean. And that entire region uh, or, or kind of a neighborhood, if you will, of the city a couple hundred years ago was all sand dunes. And so when the park got established and when they decided to build the golf course at the time, they actually ended up bringing in uh, soil to put on top of the sand dunes when they when they built the golf course originally. So um, the first tee has has operated the golf course for uh, roughly the last 10 or so years, and they needed to negotiate their lease with the city, and, and they they knew that the, the golf course was in need of, of improvement and, and investment. And so as part of their uh, lease with the city uh, negotiations, they said, hey, we would like to invest in the golf course and and put in a new irrigation system and improve the drainage and 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 really help the golf course be what it what it can and should be. And so I've gotten to know the the first tee of San Francisco over the last decade or so. I helped uh, they have a, a facility for the kids at Harding Park, which is mm-hmm. a very versatile driving range just to the left of the first hole, which can be used as a driving range or a little short course or short game practice area. And that area was um used for staging during the 2020 PGA championship at Harding Park. And so after that event, we needed to, to redo that facility. So I worked with uh, with the first tee to, to redo that facility a few years ago. And that was such a great uh, experience teaming up. And, and Golden Gate Park is just such a special setting. It's it's a really unique property. I can't tell you the number of people that I talk to that say, oh, my God, I never knew there was a golf course in Golden Gate Park. I've spent a lot of time in the area, but mm-hmm. I never knew there was a golf course. Or, oh, yeah, I played there once as a kid four years ago or whatever. So. Our hope is that by reinvesting it in the golf course, that not only will it really be a, a wonderful spot, continue to be a wonderful spot for the uh, for the first tee kids and the local community, but but really it can be one of the special nine hole par three golf courses anywhere in in, uh, in the U.S. or around the world because the setting is so special and you've got all the ingredients for for great golf with the, with the sandy soil. Yeah, I think about the best par three courses that I've ever played. Olympic club actually, by the way, has an incredible par three course, but that's really the only one that comes to mind really close to a metropolitan area with like a really high quality of design. I think the best par three course in the country I've ever played is, is the one at Bandon. I mean, to me, that is the gold standard of absolutely everything in a par three course that I'm looking for. That one might be cheating though, because it's 13 holes. But you know, some of the other ones that come to mind for me as great ones. Pinehurst has such a wonderful one, Sand Valley, but these are all extensions of premier golf resorts that are kind of in the middle of nowhere. And you look at some of the biggest cities in the country, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Chicago. I mean, I guess LA has Rancho Park, but I don't really think that's of the quality of what you're working on in San Francisco. It's just such a cool idea to me and such a smart idea for these cities to place a really high quality par three course in the middle of a metropolitan area. You don't need a giant piece of property. And with a par three course, you can play to both the casuals and serious golf nuts based on that are excited about it based on the quality of the design. You know, maybe for our East Coast listeners, like you said, this is kind of like the equivalent of plopping like a world class par three course in the middle of Central Park. And and, you know, not to get us too sidetracked here, but you know, that's what it actually means to quote unquote grow the game, right? Growing the game is not having a 50 person tournament for a couple million bucks in Saudi Arabia won by Charles Howell. You know, grow growing the game is is embarking on prioritizing projects like this, bringing affordable golf 
to urban areas, working with first T organizations. I think this is what we should actually be focusing on when we have that discussion. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think you touched on a number of aspects there, and and you're right. When I think about the best golf course, best par three golf courses in America, uh, whether it's uh, the Preserve at Bandon or the Sandbox at Sand Valley or the Cradle at Pinehurst, they're in remote locations. And and yeah. if you are lucky enough to be a, a a wealthy, well-traveled golfer, then you get to experience those places, and and that's great. And I love them, and I, I would eagerly go back to any one of them. But the idea of having something like that of, of equal quality and to have it located in a major metropolitan area, in, in our case, you know, you could walk there. You know, if you live in the city, you could walk there, you could get there by bike, you could get there by any bus, those types of things. And and to make sure that it's accessible to any and all. And and so, you know, Golden Gate Park has, has been serving the community well for decades. And I went out there and spent a lot of time kind of studying who played there on a day-to-day basis. And it truly is a golf course where many, many people are playing their first ever round of golf and they're really learning how to play golf. And so the idea that we can craft golf courses that have really fun and interesting architecture is, is how people will be introduced to the game and learn the game, you know, and we think that through this transformation that we can, we can make it more fun and, and even better for beginners and that, you know, the golf course that was there before, you know, was typically maintained in such a way that, you know, there wasn't really a fairway. It was kind of rough between the tee and the green. It was all kind of an inch and a half or two inches. So if if you didn't make good contact with the ball, the ball only went 10 yards. And now, uh, you know, we're going to have fescue turf and, and, if you top one, that ball's gonna. It's all gonna be maintained at fairway heights, so and that, that ball's really gonna run. So we think it can be even better for for local beginners and whatnot. But hopefully, you know, if you are an avid golfer who's coming to town to go play Olympic Club or Cal Club or San Francisco Golf Club or Lake Merced, uh, this might be a place that you'd want to seek out as well. So ho- hopefully, it can continue to be a great spot for beginners, but for for true architecture junkies and avid golfers, hopefully this will become a, a must-see destination in, in the heart of one of the great cities in America. It's also only like a $2.5 million project. That's like pretty damn cost-effective. Just for reference, they're putting in a new irrigation system that I just saw at Oak Hill that's going to cost $9 million on this giant piece of property for 36 holes. But when you're working with a par three course, you just don't have as much land to cover. And that's actually another reason I think that we should be looking into putting more par three courses in urban areas. It's actually not that expensive of an undertaking for the city and not as intimidating as a barrier of entry from a financial or geographic standpoint, right? Like you mentioned, a lot of people are probably playing their first round of golf ever on this golf course, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's I think that there's a lot of opportunity there and, and, you know, you maybe have the, the chance to have this be kind of a gold standard going forward. I'm looking out the window at central park right now. And I, I would be incredibly open to the idea of you heading over here and, uh, and building a rendition over here as well. Well, I, I referenced my uncle earlier. He's a longtime professor at, at Columbia. So I've spent a fair bit of time uh, dreaming of of laying out a little par three course in Central Park. So I'd love that chance. Don't know that that'll ever come about, but it would be it would be tons of fun. But I think to your point, yes, it's it's far more affordable. I think the other thing that you touched upon here, and, and I see this really as a model moving forward, is one of the keys here is is the first tee. And the first tee is is lucky enough to have a number of great supporters behind it. And so they were able to to raise the money to invest into the golf course. The sad reality is that in many municipal settings, it's very hard for the the municipality to invest in golf Mm -hmm. in that, um, you know, and, and the reality is golf needs reinvestment. You know, the irrigation system doesn't last forever. The drainage pipes don't last forever. Uh, trees get bigger and need to be pruned or removed or things like that. And and that costs money. And it's really hard uh, for a municipality to invest in golf when you're competing with, you know, water and fire and police. 
And so uh, whether it's the first tee uh, or other nonprofits, you see the, the group in Washington, D.C., the No uh, National Links Trust Organization, what's happened, uh, what's happening at Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia and others, you're seeing these public-private partnerships come together where the golf community at large is able to, to fundraise to help invest in some of these municipal facilities. And so I think there's been some examples now of really successful transformations. Uh, we're certainly hopeful that Golden Gate Park will be another one that people look to as, as a potential model for how we can we can really, to your point, grow the game. This this This, to me, seems like our, our best opportunity. Imagine all the money that's being thrown around towards live and the merger yeah. and all that kind of stuff. The numbers that you're seeing, you know, take a fraction of that money and and apply it to to efforts like this, and I think you'd have a far greater impact on our game for the next fifty. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. You're pre- you're preaching to the choir with that <laughs> one. Okay, last one that I want to ask you about. T- tell me a little bit about the work that you did at Sharp Park, which for people that don't know. That's an 18-hole Muni in Pacifica, California. Five holes on that golf course touch the Pacific Ocean. What was it like working on and you know drawing inspiration from Alistair McKenzie? Well, so Sharp Park is an ongoing effort, uh, and again, that's that's a golf course that the city of San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, owned. Although it's in Pacifica, which is a little beach town a few miles down the road, uh, so the land was gifted to the city a, a long time ago. The course opened in 1932. It was designed by Alistair McKenzie. And as he pointed out, when it first opened, it had a number of holes literally right off the Pacific yeah. Ocean, playing playing on the beach, if you will. Um, they had storms that came in and kind of washed out some of those holes, and they never really rebuilt them. They kind of abandoned them, which was unfortunate. They built some holes uh, more inland. But um, it's, a, it's a golf course that had, had come under fire. There was there were in some environmental issues with the California red-legged frog and the San Francisco garter snake. And so uh, a local group got together here, the San Francisco Public Golf Alliance got together, and they made sure that the golf course uh, was safe. You know, there was a very high likelihood that the golf course was going to go away forever. And um, they they stood up and, and, and fought the legal battles to make sure that uh, it stays a golf course, that the golf course... Uh, is actually an environmental benefit to the area and to the community and to the uh, to the creatures, and so therefore, you know, we can coexist and, and live harmoniously. So, uh, for the past you know ten years, it's really been more of a legal battle to make sure that there still is a golf course, and then moving forward, our hope is to actually restore the golf course and and to bring as much of it back as we can. Uh, obviously, we won't be able to put the holes back on the beach, but there's a number of uh, whether it's expanding the greens out to what they once uh, once were, you know, you can imagine that over uh, over the decades, over ninety years, you know, most of the greens have shrunk and become kind of a simple oval. And if yeah. you look back at some of the old aerial photos, they had you know really interesting shapes and were much bigger. And when you expand those greens out, then the contours get much more interesting and exciting. And so whether it's restoring bunkers that are no longer or getting the greens back to the old shape. So that's ultimately the goal is to, to restore the golf course. So we're in a phase now where we're, we're kind of fundraising and, and putting everything together in, in, a, in a hopes to be able to take that next step after having saved the golf course. Now we want to restore it and bring it back to its, uh, its glory. And so again, with what we did at Golden Gate Park, hopefully that can again, kind of be a, a good model and a precursor to what we'd like to do at Sharp Park. And uh, you're working, Tom Toke's working on that one with you a little bit, at least on, he's been involved in helping reshape some of the greens, if I have that correct too. What's that been, have you gotten to work with him a little bit on anything else or is that your first time, first time collaborating on something? Yeah, so Tom's been involved. Again, we haven't really done any work on the greens other than to kind of mow some of them out. There's been no kind of, construction work but uh, mm-hmm. probably about five years ago now or so we were out on site uh together kind of exploring it, you know it's almost like an archaeological dig you know <laughs> you try yeah. to look at the old photos figure out map out where the old green might have been and then uh get out there and see how that looks in the field so um you know i have not worked with tom before i've known tom probably for 
I don't know, 10 or 15 years now. He's always been very kind to me. Obviously, his work on other McKenzie golf courses and having helped uh, written a book, a biography yeah. of McKenzie. Uh, obviously, his, his background is is unparalleled when it comes to uh, McKenzie. So it's been, it's been fun. That, you know, the couple times that we've been out on site together, looking at it and and kind of dreaming of what could be has been a lot of fun. And so looking forward, ho- hoping that opportunity will present itself as we move forward. All right. Final question before we get out of here. What's one golf course that you've played recently that really amazed you? That's a good one. It's been a bunch. You know, it's it's always for kind of different reasons. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I think of a place like Marion, Mm-hmm. where they got so much out of a site that's so small and has so many constraints, whether it's the road going through it or just what the property boundaries were. So that one's always been one to me that stands out as how did they get so much out of a really truly confined property? Then you go see other places that have really interesting or severe terrain. Right, uh, I was up a couple of years ago up at the Gray Walls in northern Michigan, yeah, and to see how uh, how they were able to to get a, a number of interesting golf holes out of out of some some severe topography. So you know, th- there's different examples all over the place, uh, but it's usually site specific. You know, what what were the site constraints, and how were the architects or the developers able to um, get the most out of the property considering what those site constraints were. I'm so jealous of Michigan is just not a place that's I'm either very far on the East coast or very far on the West coast in California and Michigan is just never in my range of outcomes when it comes to traveling. I'm so jealous of the land that they have there. It feels like I feel that's why, you know, Tom Doak says he lives there. He's like, it, this is the best, this is some of the best land for golf courses in the country. So that one's big time on my list. But um, Jay, thank you so much for joining me. This was an absolute pleasure. I'd love to, there, there are a ton of more things that, uh, that I would have loved to dive into with you, but you've been incredible, incredibly generous with your time uh, already. And hopefully we can do it again. When is, um, just so the listeners know, maybe that are, maybe in that San Francisco area, but what, what do you think the timeline is for, for that restoration with the first tee being completed? Well, we've just kind of finished grassing the golf course a, a couple of weeks ago or a week or two ago. And, and so obviously we've got to let it grow in uh, and we'll, we'll let that kind of take its course and, and let the grass guide us on when that date will be, but hopefully it will be sometime later this fall. So uh, we're, we're super excited to, to have people get back out there and and uh, fall in love all over again with with uh, Golden Gate Park Golf Course. I'm certainly excited to check it out myself. Um, that was awesome, Jay. Thank you so much for joining me, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate. It. All right, that is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Jay Blasi. Special thanks to RickRunGood.com, and we will be back next week with uh, one of my favorite episodes of the year, the annual NFL Futures podcast. Uh, I've been diving into NFL all week. I've got some takes, some strong opinions, and uh, we had an absolutely incredible NFL season last year. So it's going to be tough to top, but I think we can do it. I'm, uh, I'm more prepared for this NFL season than I was last year. I can tell you that. So look out for that episode next week. It is one of my favorite ones to do of the entire year. And until then, enjoy the Labor Day weekend, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead shed the back roads stop